people, we're back. Welcome to the Truth Exchange podcast, a new program where we have conversations about worldview all through the lens of oneism and twoism. This, this lens is based on Romans 125. We've exchanged the truth of God for the lie, worship and serve creation rather than the, than the creator who is blessed forevermore. I'm your host, Joshua Gilo, and Mary Weller and Stephen Chaver are with us today. Great to have you guys back. Hi, you guys. Great to be here. Quick announcement about our online symposium on April 5th to the 10th. America is a house divided and its foundations seem to be cracking. Civil disorder and violence afflicts the republic and the church is increasingly split. Is America and the church systemically racist? What do we say to Black Lives Matter? Should Christians be woke? Can the church survive if it remains faithful to biblical teachings on gender and sexuality? How do Christians respond to modern economic and ecological crises? All these questions will be answered. Please join us. You can find us on Facebook.com as well as on our website. We'll be streaming this symposium. Great lineup of speakers, including Mary Weller and Dr. Stephen Chavura. So that being said, let's just go ahead and jump into what our discussion for the day is. We've got a book review. This is the first time we've done a book review on the podcast. Kind of exciting. Yes. And what book is this, Dr. Chibur? I was going to call you Dr. Jones. <laughs> <laughs> I'm honored. I'm honored. Uh, well, uh, this is a book uh, that all three of us uh, had discovered that we'd read quite independently of one another, and that is Live Not By Lies, the latest book by Rod Dreyer, Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. And uh, I will say that um, this is definitely one of the best books I read uh, in, gosh, when did it come out? 2020. So this is definitely yeah. one of the best books I read in 2020. Uh, what are your thoughts, guys? Great book. You know, did you read the Benedict Option? No, I never, I never got around to reading that. I'm, I'm ashamed to say. Good book, I, but it was one of those books I, you know, I, I walked away saying there's there's a lot of great things in it. There's, but then there's a lot of things where I'm like, nah, okay, he's leaning. This is when he was transitioning into um, Eastern Orthodox, and there's a lot of almost escapism and like completely let's pull out um, of the culture. But um, I think he in in Live Not by Lies. There's a lot of great, powerful arguments um, for what Christians should do. And we'll, we'll probably tackle that later on down. What was the aim of the book? What did you get out of it, Stephen? Uh, well, I think the aim of the book is really to try to let us know exactly what is going on in culture right now. We sort of uh, look around and see, you know, uh, rapid changes taking place in terms of not just how we think about sexuality and gender, but also changes in terms of what seems to be increasing hostility to religious freedom, uh, freedom of speech. And essentially what Dreyer is trying to point out is that what's happening now is not really new. Uh, it's, it's, it's a kind of, it's, it's sort of a, the, the most recent iteration of totalitarianism, the kind of totalitarianism, well, totalitarianism as sort of a theme in the 20th century, it certainly hit uh, Soviet bloc countries, and he goes into certain countries in great detail, namely Czechoslovakia, or the former, now former Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic now. And he basically argues that what we're going through now in the liberal democratic West is what he calls a kind of soft 
totalitarianism mm -hmm. or what we might call therapeutic totalitarianism. So basically, Dreyer is trying to show us that there are really, I mean, to, to be, to be um, really simplistic, but there are bad things coming. That, uh, freedoms are going to be encroached on. Um, free thought is going to be encroached on. Freedom of religion is going to be encroached on, but it's not necessarily going to be in the name of communist Marxism. Right. It's basically going to be in the name of sort of fighting oppression. Uh, but, but I think most importantly for, for Rod Dreyer, and also for um, uh, Carl Truman in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, um, in the name, basically in the name of, of, of safety and, and health and, and mental health and what, you know, what, what we could call therapeutic uh, totalitarianism. And, and that's sort of what's coming. Um, Mary, you've probably got your own thoughts on this. Well, what I was sitting here thinking actually was, you're so concise, you're so able to sort of encapsulate something like that in a way that I'm, I find I wander all over the place, but I think you've done an excellent job of highlighting some of this. And um, just, so I read the book after both of you did, it had been on my shelf, but uh, I had started it and then I had gotten off on, on other things. So I came back to it and just crammed this last week, knowing that we were going to be reading it. And it's just fantastic. And um, I had finished a series uh, that I've listened to a couple of times now called What We Saw, The Cold War, mm. uh, which is a 12-part series. I can't remember the name of the gentleman who's the narrator of that, but just who, who went way back in time to like Tsarist Russia and came all the way forward. And I found that that historical foundation helped me so much as I read um, what Rod Dreher put put down in this book. I found it so encouraging. Um, I felt a bit for the first time that, you know, we, we talk about things in terms of oneism and twoism and, and viewing everything through that lens, but being able to put that label of soft totalitarianism on what is happening across the board. I mean, he touches on critical race theory here. He, he touches on what's happening within the transgender movement. He touches on uh, cancel culture and this expectation that we will speak certain things, whether they are true or not. Um, I, I, I just felt that he encapsulated what we really are experiencing um, as believers in the West, I think in particular, in, in such a beautiful way. Um, and I found myself encouraged um, heartbroken at points. I mm. spent time in Romania in 1994. Oh, that's right. Uh, and spent time with Christians who had been persecuted. And I was 16 at the time. Uh, I'd grown up here in Southern California. I'd been across the border into Mexico at certain points, but I, I, I really had no clue what I was walking into there. And so conversations that I had had with pastors, there was a particular pastor and his wife that I spent a lot of time with who were horrendously persecuted in uh, Romania. And I, I, had, I came away with a new understanding of some of those conversations that I think just in my immaturity at the time, I was so young, I couldn't really grasp. I, I came away with an appreciation for them, prayers for them and a desire um, to honor God in this situation, um, and more of an understanding of how to do that. I just, I loved this book. It really shot to the top of my list. Yeah. Do you, um, for Mary or, or, or Stephen, do you feel that, or do you think, uh, I, 
Steven, you got me. Well <laughs> all, done. All, all week, I've been, I've been catching myself feel versus think. Do you think that Rod Dreher is overreacting throughout the whole book, through parts of the book, with some of the landscape of how he's painting the, 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 the problems that are arising in the culture, the, the, the problems that have been already there as seeds and are now starting to blossom. Do you think that's a, it's overreactionary? Uh, no, not at all. Uh, I think he's, he's, he's um, a very sort of sober level, level headed analyst. I mean, mm-hmm. You know, there are some people out there who, who who will say, you know, well, um, they might say, look at the Democrats, or they might they might look at um, basically the, the the sort of the progressive left, if you like, and they'll say, this is Marxist communism. They're they're, they're trying to bring about communism. I don't think that's a very I don't think that's the most subtle interpretation of what's going on in the modern West. So I. I but ha- having said that, though, there is a continuity between the kind of Marxist totalitarianism that the 20th century saw and certain things that are happening today. And I think Dreyer actually nicely finds um, the, the sort of the, the right way of expressing what's going on, that it is totalitarianism. And he offers a great definition of totalitarianism, but it is not the kind of totalitarianism that the 20th century was used to. It's a different kind of totalitarianism. And, you know, he, he backs up everything he says with, with case studies. And, and, um, and, and I think just when you, when you, and we probably will, but when you talk about what's going on in terms of the transgender movement and children now being taken from their parents by the state, Yes. It, it's very hard to say that that Rod Dreyer is exaggerating, um, or just sort of being a culture warrior. And, and when you look at sort of the rise of of limiting people's speech based on appeals to things like hate speech, it's very hard to say that Rod Dreyer is exaggerating. And and yeah, you know, Dreyer Dreyer isn't given to exaggeration. Um, you know, it's it's a very sober analysis, but but crucially. He, he does make that distinction between the kind of just outright brutal, violent totalitarianism of the, yes. the Marxist regimes in the 20th century and what we're going to be facing now. Um, so, yeah. no, I, I definitely don't think he's exaggerating. And I think the onus is on anyone who says he is exaggerating. I mean, when, when you think about you know, 30 years ago, who would have thought maybe a few fairly visionary prescient people, but who would have thought that um, children would be taken away from their parents because their parents' religious views were considered to create an unsafe environment for their children? Who would have thought of that happening? Um, But it's happening. And so for people to say that he's exaggerating now, um, that really just indicates to me that they're not really paying attention to what's going on. Yeah, I I completely agree with you. And Joshua, when you asked us whether we thought he was exaggerating, it hadn't crossed my mind that he might be because it what he presented seemed so relevant and realistic. But even just this morning, you take two headlines. Uh, in Canada, a father has now been arrested uh, because he insists on calling his daughter she rather than he, though the daughter is trans identifying as a male now. And so um, 
the court had ordered this father not to refer to his daughter as she any longer because it was abusive. And because he's refused to do that, um, he, he was arrested and jailed in British Columbia. Um, I don't have all the details on that. This was something that I had just skimmed through right before we started talking today. Um, but then within um, a huge company, Deloitte & Touche, there are reports coming out, I think whistleblower reports, that they are now saying that um, during their, their critical race theory training that they're doing for employees, that employees have been put on alert that they can be punished uh, in their jobs for microaggressions. Well, what are microaggressions? <laughs> you know, how do you define that? That is, that is speech code. A microaggression often is something that we allegedly don't even know that we're carrying out against another person. So if a company is going to um, ruin someone's career for that, uh, we are dealing then with the very real kind of soft totalitarianism just right out, out of today's headlines that Dreher was describing. Can I just sort of add to that, sort of the idea of microaggressions? Um, one of the things with, with critical theory and, and crit I mean, certainly critical race theory and, and, and also critical gender theory is that they define these phobias and isms in such a way that you're, you basically need to be an expert to be able to pick them up. So yeah. you know, the idea of a microaggression is something that almost by definition is something that cannot necessarily be detected by people very, very easily. You kind of need the proper training to do it. Um, and so it places, it places it sort of in the hands of experts. And uh, how does one become an expert on microaggressions? You know, you know, what's the method of training in that respect? And the, the other thing that, that, that critical theory likes to talk about a lot is dog whistling. Um, that, that people say things that aren't in any way overtly, that don't seem to be overtly racist or overtly sexist or phobic in any sense, but, but they really are. And you just have to be attuned to it. Uh, and, and hence it's dog whistling. And to me, that's just very, very dangerous because yeah. it basically means that people can say things in perfectly good faith um, and be understood by the majority of people not to be saying anything untoward or insidious but the experts come along and say, well, in actual fact, although it sounds to the untrained layman, layperson, there a guy just did a microaggression, layperson, not layman. Um, <laughs> everyone can lie down. Um, that's oh, what was said was totally innocuous. But in reality, no, it was actually racist. It was phobic in some way. It's going to lead to violence. It's going to lead to suicide. We must silence this kind of speech. I, I just think that's an incredibly dangerous path that we're going down. Well, and it's speech uh, coming from a particular person. Uh, and it is a person who, you know, has attributes that they can't help any more than the people that they're allegedly being aggressive, microaggressive toward. You know, it makes me think of the headlines here in the United States. I don't know if this has been such a big deal in Australia, Stephen, but um, with the show The Bachelor, uh, which I studiously do not watch, but um, it's been around for, I think, 20 years. And um, there was an issue where the, the last bachelor um, was African-American, is African-American. Um, the girl that he chose um, had attended an antebellum party in her past, and this was uncovered. He asked for some grace for her and then um, as an African-American, and then later on, I think just three days later, the host who is white, almost verbatim said the same thing. And 
he's been hit for racism. I mean, he's lost his position in the show. He's no longer, he wasn't in the final episode. He's no longer going to be the host of the show. So because of this, this aspect of himself that he can't help his whiteness. And we're, we're hearing that change in vocabulary too, where it's not your racism or your intention. It's your whiteness that is the issue. And I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that. Um, but so his words were wrong, even though they were the same words because of who he was. So there are all these defining categories that seem like they're constantly moving and shifting based on different intersectional levels that are, I agree, it's dangerous and it's scary because you can't really um, see where the next wrong, the next line is going to be crossed. Yeah. It just gives completely sort of arbitrary power to either A, or experts or B, um, you know, uh, people of color who have these feelings about what what people have said and, and and it's so important and i think your your what you just said there mary is really insightful in that it's it's sort of um gone from being about you know, i think you said something about racism to to skin color it's not necessarily yeah. what someone said it's who the person is who said it and, right. and that, 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 yeah. i'm i'm sorry in this issue with the bachelor what i find interesting is that what both these men said was commendable in my mind. It was, let's give her some grace. Let's figure out what was going on here. Um, let's just wait before we jump to uh, these horrible conclusions about this person. So what both of them said would even a couple years ago have been an admirable thing, but one has lost not everything, but a lot as a result of that. And it was because of the class he felt or the category that he falls into yeah and very importantly to to make this distinction again to sort of bring it back to rod dreyer's book this is a this is actually a pretty good example of of sort of soft totalitarianism although um soft the 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 boundaries between soft and hard totalitarianism are are being blurred but what, what i mean by this is that it's not the it's not the american government it's not the state Mm-hmm. that is imposing penalties uh, on this woman. Uh, it's corporations, it's the media. Um, yeah. So, and, and that's what a lot of soft totalitarianism is. It's not necessarily the government using its right to coerce, which is like the, the, the classical political science definition of the state. Uh, you know, the, the great uh, German sociologist Max Weber defined the state as that institution which has the monopoly, has a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence, which is actually a pretty good definition of the state. Okay. This mm-hmm. is not the state doing these things. It's, right. it's corporations. But but having said that, it's having a trim, it's having an incredibly disruptive impact on people's lives people are losing their jobs um mm-hmm. yeah. so it is a form of totalitarianism uh but it's not at, at this in this instance anyway it's not being wielded by the state but in other instances like when we're talking about transgenderism it is being wielded by the state the mm-hmm. state license the state allowing children to be taken away or mandating that children should be taken away Stephen, can you repeat that definition one more time of the state? 
Yeah, yeah. It's a famous definition that goes back to, I think, 1919, but it's from Max Weber. The state is that institution which has a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. Mm. That's what the state is. So what distinguishes the mafia from the government or the state? Well, it's not that, 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 the, that, that the state uses force against people and the mafia doesn't. The mafia does use force against people. The distinction is that the state has the right to use force. Yeah. And that, that, that is the definition of the state that you'll find in sort of most political science textbooks. That's really helpful. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, and that's what we mean, like, that's historically what we've meant by a separation of church and state. It's sort of a separation of, well, basically the state not exercising its coercive rights in the sphere of religious practice or belief. It's, it's really about religious freedom. Right. And, and, and what we're seeing with the, the transgender debates uh, or, well, the transgender movement is that the separation of church and state is being eroded because the state is, in effect, punishing people uh, for acting on and exercising their religious beliefs, particularly if a child wants to transition and the parents believe, uh, you know, as scripture teaches, that in actual fact um, they are not sort of a boy trapped in a woman's body or, or, or like that, that in actual fact they're that they are they do actually reflect god's order that right. their children are being taken away that their religious beliefs are being overridden uh, in the name of health and, of, of sort of health and, and and well-being again that kind of therapeutic totalitarianism right. uh, that rod dreyer talks about a lot in his book and to get back to sort of sort of children being taken away from parents i sort of did some research into this and it, it's happening all around it's happening all around the liberal democratic world. In 2018, you had the Cincinnati case of a 17-year-old being taken out of the custody of uh, her parents and placed with her grandparents. Um, you have in 2019 in British Columbia, the Supreme Court uh, um, basically awarded a 14-year-old the right to begin, a 14-year-old boy the right to uh, begin hormone therapy to transition into a girl. And that very court said that attempts to dissuade the child from doing this are, quote, will, will quote, be considered to be family violence, end quote. Uh, In 2020 in Australia, we had a child removed at the age of 15 from parental custody because the child wanted to transition. Uh, yeah, the age of 15. And in all instances, the justification is if you don't, if we don't remove these children, they will self-harm or suicide. And, and so part of, the, part of the transgender pitch, if you like, is that it's either fully affirm transgender identity or suicide. Take mm-hmm. your pick. There's nothing in between, uh, which is just a horrific uh, lie and oversimplification of the reality of the, of the complexity of all of this. One of the uh, there's lots of criticism on on Rod's book, but one one uh, criticism that I keep seeing over and over is that that those who who like to use CRT as a tool, or even those who are are a part of the woke crowd or are concerned about racism or nationalism, as they say, see this is an example of oppressors not wanting to let go of their power. This is all about power play, and and he's trying to keep this this narrative going, and so it's the fear. It's a fear mongering, 
And how, how would you respond to that kind of critique? Uh, one writer on, on the Gospel Coalition says, my point isn't that Dreher is wrong to warn against cultural currents that may sweep us into soft totalitarianism. I only wish he had explored how this tendency toward this view could wind up being as much a feature of nationalist surge from the far right as it could be from, uh, from the left. Mary, did you want to start with that? Well, <laughs> <laughs> The passage that immediately springs to mind for me, and I was just trying to find it. And Stephen, you and I were joking about how, you know, we kept changing the way that we were highlighting through the book because I had so many highlights that, you know, I needed to highlight my highlights so I could categorize them. But <laughs> is where uh, Rod Dreher, um talks about the power of the powerless church. I think that's the way that he actually addresses it. And so to insinuate in any way um, that this book could be used as a tool for those who want to make power grabs or who want to retain power, um, it, it leaves me a little speechless because his entire point was that uh, faith was the bedrock of the survival of these people who, for whom all power had been taken away. And in some ways, you know, uh, there are testimonies, especially at the end of the book, where the beauty that people found was that when all else had been taken away and all they had left was Christ, when they were in prison, separated from their families, and all they had was Christ, um, that this was where they found beauty and where they found peace and where they found what was worth living and dying for. And I even wrote a note to myself um, about my own parents because my parents were not persecuted, but they were beautiful believers and they both suffered lengthy deaths um, by modern day standards. My mom had two bouts with metastatic breast cancer. The second one eventually, you know, over the course of eight years, that's, that's what she died from. And uh, my dad, uh, died over the course of a couple of months where we were caring for him in hospice. And what I saw here was the same thing I saw with my parents, which was that suffering loss and having all else taken away caused a beauty and a peace and a loveliness in my parents. And in some of these people, now that I've been reminded of, reminded of that I spent time with in Romania, um, that I've never seen any place else. And so that's my takeaway from this book. So it, that it seems a very inaccurate um, reading of the book. It seems you'd have to read really hard between the lines and assume a lot of things about a lot of people to say that someone would take this book and use it as a, a defense of a power grab. That that's almost the exact opposite of what I walked away with um, from this book. Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, look, I think I, look, my basic response to that point would be. It's hard to think of too many ideas that couldn't be misused. Sure. Um, any book that, that is discussing a controversial issue and that is making interesting points can be misused and misunderstood by someone. Like the Bible. I, I actually think it's, yeah, well, well it's certainly the Bible, absolutely. Um, yeah. But I actually think it's, I think there's something strange um, about sort of Christians who would probably describe themselves as either sort of centrist and, and sort of transcending the culture wars, which I actually think is the idea of transcending the culture wars, I think is a bit of a vanity, to be honest, mm. or Christians who would 
describe themselves as as leftists, sort of pointing to sort of Rod Dreyer's book, which is sort of warning about the pernicious influence of wokeism and therapeutic totalitarianism, sort of pointing to it and sort of saying, oh, you know, well, he's sort of, he's um, pulling a lot of sort of culture war strings that the, that the right will really like, uh, w- which is true, he is. But then them saying, oh, that's potentially dangerous. I mean, ha- have these people have these people been paying attention to what's been going on in the world after over the last 18 months where right. most of the violence has actually been coming from that most of the violence, the overwhelming majority of the violence that America has experienced. And that was, that was sort of also experienced uh, in the UK in 2020 was not from white Christian nationalists. It was actually from people who would speak a lot of the same language as the Christians who would critique Rod Dreyer's book as sort of playing into the culture wars. So my yeah. response would be, well, you know, most most interesting ideas ca- can be abused. But actually, how about you know, removing the plank from your own eye in, in terms of sort of if we're really going to follow uh, America or the church or the West is systemically oppressive? Do you think that kind of language may have fed into the Black Lives Matter uh, riots, which uh, mm-hmm. resulted in the deaths, I think, of nearly 20 people around the US. Yeah. I mean, yeah. basically, for them to sort of critique Rod Dreher's analysis, because it could, because the language he uses could feed into uh, white Christian nationalism, which I think is a notoriously ill-defined concept anyway, for them to actually say that is a actually condemns them far more than it condemns those who would analyze modern society like Rod Dreher, because in actual fact, the violence that the most of the violence that we've experienced, ideological violence that we've experienced over the last 18 months uh, has been from those who would imitate the language of, of, of the progressives. Mm. And that's not to say that I'm not playing into their argument and saying they're causing this kind of violence. I'm simply saying, if we're going to take their argument seriously, they wind up looking far worse than people like Rod Dreyer. Mm-hmm. So speaking specifically to that, uh, I did manage to find one of my highlighted quotes. Um, yes. Words that, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I required highlights and a post-it note and then a note on the post-it note, but I found it. Um, is that um, towards the end of the book, Rod Dreyer was interviewing a young man, Kruska, I believe is his name, who had gone... Um, back to, forgive me, I want to say it was Slovakia, um, to interview Christians who had been oppressed. And this is a quote from this young man, what he learned from these oppressed Christians. And I'll tell you what my note was here, right along with what you were just saying. So uh, Kriska said, this younger man, it seems that the less they, these persecuted Christians, were able to change the world around them, the stronger they had become. These people completely changed my understanding of freedom. My project changed from looking for victims to finding heroes. I stopped building a monument to the unjust past and I began looking for a message for us, for the free people. Mm. And the note that I wrote was, this is the opposite now. of I think some of what's happening in, especially this realm of critical race theory, where they're going back, you know, look at the 1619 project where there's this attempt to go back and to completely rewrite the founding of this nation, which slavery was a sin. 
repentance is required for that. Jim Crow was sinful. What we allowed to happen as a nation to uh, minority men and women in this country was wrong. And yet talk about going back and building monuments, rewriting history in order to carry that grudge. I, I just, to, to accuse Dreher then of this tone that people, I mean, they really have to really misuse the book. They'd have to really look past his ultimate points, his conclusions in order to make the accusations that you just read for us, Joshua. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine wrote, uh, on his blog the other day first they came for the racist but i was not yet accused of being a racist so i did nothing then they came for the racist but i was not yet accused of being racist so i did nothing then they came for the racist and wait wait no i'm on your side (laughs) what is the response for christians what how does rod go into it what are your thoughts about what rod says Uh, pretty much the 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 latter the second half of his book is about a christian response how did how did you feel Rod tackled that. I think he tackled it really, really well. Uh, and what I liked about his book, yeah, like I said, I, I, I haven't, I, I never read the Benedict Option. Um, but what I liked about this book is that he, he doesn't really talk about retreating in this. And I don't know whether that's what he said in Benedict Option. I'm not claiming that at all. But he, he talks about resistance, and I really like that. And, and for, for Drea, uh, what we need to do, I mean, there are so many great lines in this, but uh, one, one of them I really liked is that we need to be pioneers of truth. That is, mm. we're entering into sort of a terrain now, a territory, where there are all these sort of uh, pseudo-truth claims about sexuality, about gender, about the nation, about racism, um, which are going to prove to be very detrimental to individuals, families, and society at large. And what Christians need to do is, in a sense, uh, pioneer the truth again in the same way that, you know, the early Australians were pioneers. So they came into to this land uh, not understanding uh, the territory, not understanding uh, the landscape or anything like that, and having to try to uh, turn it into something uh, beautiful, uh, which, of course, in Australia did not happen without uh, violence, I'm, I'm sorry to say. There's no doubt about it. But uh, I, I like the idea of, of Rod Dreher that, that basically we need to understand ourselves as, as coming into a quite a as living in quite a sort of foreign territory now mm-hmm. and having to reestablish uh the truth but the important thing about rod dreyer is that that and I, and I think we would all agree that you know we, we reestablish the truth not just by speaking propositions to the world but by living the truth yes. uh, by showing how the truth is transformative in us and and one thing i really liked and i'll, I'll sort of read a, a brief part from the book is that uh, for Rod Dreyer, um, I've got a quote here. Yeah, I, I like this. I mean, there's so much. Uh, I'll, I'll read this from page 18. He says, the task of the Christian dissident today is to personally commit herself to live not by lies. And that quote is from Solzhenitsyn. Don't live according to the lies that are being forced on us by totalitarian regimes, whether they're lies about uh, sort of uh, what it is to be a human being or what it is to be male or female or how can she do that alone to live not by lies that is she needs to draw close to authentic spiritual leadership clerical mm-hmm. lay or both and and form small cells of fellow believers with whom she can pray 
sing, study scripture, and read other books important to their mission. With her cell, the dissident discusses the issues and, chal and challenges facing them as Christians, especially challenges to their liberties. Um, and the other thing that he says, I think quite brilliantly, that is maybe the most effective cell of resistance is the family. Yes. Um, so that, yeah, I, that, that's sort of, yeah. I had, I had written down that his response was one, and, and I think a lot of it, of the quote that you uh, just read to us uh, captures this, is one is the ordering of our spiritual lives, hope and religion, suffering, family, fellowship, and strategy against wrong messages. I think that's to, to me as I as I watch the news and I watch social media and what's trending. I, I'm there's a lot of wrong messages and even there's a lot of mixed messages that tend to weigh heavy on the wrong side. Stephen, what are you, or Mary? What are your thoughts about how Christians should respond to wrong messages? What is a good strategy against that? Uh, well, okay. Yeah. Well, first to, to sort of understand what the right message ought to be. I mean, th this is a thing and I tend to agree uh, with a lot of uh, Christian commentators who are saying one of the foundational problems with, with uh, modern Christians is that they're not well enough grounded in sort of the, the biblical teachings about sort of the nature of nature, the, the mm. nature of the universe. That they need twoism. Oneism and twoism, yeah, just, just the idea that there is a creator and there is a creation, uh, that creation derives its being from the will of the creator, the two are distinct, you worship the creator, you don't worship the creation, and you understand that the creation has an order imposed upon it, not by us human beings, and not by creation itself, mm. but by the creator, which means that the order of creation has what we might call a kind of normative or moral force behind it. That, that is, uh, it, it, the way that we have traditionally understood uh, gender uh, as, as a sort of a natural link with our biological sex uh, is not something that we as human beings constructed. It is something built into nature itself and built into it by God. And, 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 it has, and it has normative or, or moral force. It's the way things should be. And, more, and, and as importantly, when you deviate from that, and we said this in the last podcast, and I'll just keep saying it, um, when you deviate from God's created order, when you start thinking about it in a way that God does not license us to think about it, when you start saying things like, gender is just a social construct mm -hmm. or uh, sexuality is, is, is nothing objective. You can do whatever you want. Then not only are you saying things that are just wrong, that are incorrect uh, because they don't match with the word of God. Uh, you're saying things that are leading us away from the natural order, which is only going to lead, lead to misery. It's going to lead to the immiserization of society mm. uh, because the natural order is something that is objective and God tells us how to live and how to think uh, because he knows that that is how we're going to obtain you know, earthly well-being. And, and, and that's possibly something that we as evangelicals, we've sort of placed less emphasis, 
less emphasis on over the years. We talk a lot about he- uh, sort of eternal well-being, but and, and God's certainly given us um, the, the the sort of the key for eternal well-being in His Son Jesus. But God also gives us the key for earthly well-being, and it's not the prosperity gospel that I'm talking about. It's it's living in accordance with the created order. Right. right. Um, that you know you have a greater chance of living long in the land. Like things are far more likely to go well for you if you accept the order of creation and what it says about the nature of the family, the nature of male and female, the best way to express ourselves sexually. Things are likely to go better for you. Uh, if you honor those laws. And so what what should Christians do uh, in terms of responding to the wrong messages? The first thing we need to, to do is recapture what the right message is, that, that, that nature is objective, there is an objective order, and that messages that depart from that are not just wrong and incorrect, but they will lead to misery, and they are leading to misery. Yes. Uh, that would be the first thing I would say. Hmm. There are a couple of things throughout the book that came up so often. One is just the strength of the truth. The truth is true, whether you say it's true or not. The truth is true, whether you throw things at it or not. You know, we discussed uh, in the last podcast, uh, the way that we have tried to change vocabulary to say untrue things. And because it hasn't worked, we now do medical violence to people. Um, and I still think that that's an accurate description. And, and that came up to me as I was reading this book, which is the, the truth is going to stand. And when you're flailing at the truth, when you're attempting to mask the truth, when you're trying to live according to those untruths, you do damage to yourself or others do damage to you. Um, and I found it so interesting that, um, you know, we were talking so specifically about gender uh, the stories of these Christians who were speaking the gospel truth, you know, they had violence done to them also. It was covered up systemically. It was covered up by the state. Um, and the resulting call then for so many of these Christian dissidents uh, was to have mercy, just to keep speaking the truth or at least not acknowledge the lies. Um, you know, and I, and I liked the, um, the emphasis that Roger put on the fact that we're not called to go seek out suffering. We're not called to go take it on unnecessarily. Um, and so there is a soft resistance too, which is simply, you know, from for us and our family, it's been a decision to call someone by the name that they give us, but to refer to gender according to biology. Um, that really is offensive to some people, but it is true. This is the line. And, you know, there are people who will disagree with us on either side of that, but it's the line that we've decided in our family right now is us speaking truth. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's not walking up to some kid who's identifying as another gender and being like, no, you're actually a boy. You know, it's, it's not any of that. It's, it's choosing simply not to press that lie. And then when you encounter that brokenness and what I found so poignant was the description of the Bendas who had an apartment in Czechoslovakia right next to an interrogation center. And so whether a person had been called in to be interrogated and they were an atheist or they were a Christian or they were whatever they were, they knew this was a place where they could go and be encouraged before they went in to be tortured. Mm. They knew that if they broke, (laughs) And if they were, you know, if they ratted people out, if they gave up information that they hadn't wanted to, they could come back and they could weep 
and be offered a, a cup of tea and a glass of wine specifically and to be comforted afterward. Um, the mercy that was called for, the reaching across, um, both seeking out fellow believers, but just seeking out fellow sufferers, people who are being hurt by these lies, whether they acknowledge God or not, the mercy, the hospitality that you were to have for them. Uh, that was so touching. It reminded me of passages in Rosaria's book, the gospel, Rosaria Butterfield's book, the gospel comes with a house key, the necessity of making our homes into places where truth is spoken and acknowledged, mm -hmm. even just the way that we talk about God in our homes, that we honor them. You know, we have a very sarcastic, jokey family, but there are certain lines that don't get crossed in our home. God is to be honored. Um, and so just people being around that truth, one, is important for all of our Christian families. And then that, that resistance of speaking those lies, and then the mercy we have on the broken, uh, these are all our evangelistic tools. And um, that just came through so beautifully here. I'm mm -hmm. so encouraged yeah. by it. That's great. Yeah. And just to get back to the title very briefly, the, again, the Live Not By Lies. Yes. Again, you know, for Drea, and, and, and again, I think for any sort of thoughtful, truly empathetic Christian. And there's a word that's been sort of controversial lately, empathy. But, yep. you know, we, we don't buy into lies for at least two reasons. First is that they're lies and, and the, the truth is something that is good. Um, yeah. but, but second, that it's unloving to lie to people. Yes. Uh, it's unloving to confirm people in their false beliefs about their gender or sexuality and confirm them on a path that is not going to be conducive to their uh, emotional and, and physical well-being. So we live not by lies, not just because we love the truth, but because we love our neighbors. And, yes. and any Christian who would suggest that we affirm um, uh, people in their, in their, gender identity uh, or some other kind of um, problematic mode of identity, whether it's anywhere in the LGBT, that, that we affirm that and we celebrate it, is not, it's simply not loving to them. Uh, it may be a kind of blind empathy where, in a sense, you want them to feel good in the then and now, but in actual fact, in the long run, um, this is not going to be conducive to their well-being and happiness at all. It's, it's just a kind of blind love, which is not real love at all. And sometimes I wonder whether the empathy, the sort of those who sort of place empathy at the center of their moral framework, sometimes I actually wonder, this is a bit controversial, whether they're actually empathizing more with themselves than with the other person. And they're trying to remove their own, feelings of sorrow for the person and the way that they remove their own feelings of sorrow is by confirming whatever that other person wants and it kind of makes them feel better in the moment um, and it's probably possibly more about them than the other person um, i'm happy to be challenged on that um but no, i just yeah i think there's a yes and i mean there's a there's a there is some truth i mean there's there's true empathy that is yeah. loving and then I think because we're all imperfect people, there is a selfishness to our empathy also. Um, but, but I don't think that you're, you're wrong in that. And I, I think that this is where we 
have to make those choices. Um, you know, and it's not just within the LGBTQ community, but just, you know, I, th I think of talking to friends who are involving themselves in relationships that are not going to be helpful to them. I think of friends who talk to me about relationships like that. And I was offended. I didn't want to hear it. I didn't want to be told those things. So they were hurting my feelings. They were interrupting my efforts at, you know, therapeutic living, you know, at whatever given time. And yet they were the ones who truly were loving me, the people who were encouraging me in making choices that were fine as far as the culture was concerned. Um, you know, who were encouraging me and that were encouraging me and what ultimately was damage to myself. And, mm. um, and you see sort of extreme examples of this, I think sometimes, for instance, when we're dealing again with detransitioners, and I know I, I always go to the detransitioners, but there's a YouTube account of a woman who I identifies as a man. Um, and I think has been through sur surgical modification as well. And the entire point of this very popular YouTube channel is for this woman to take on the stories of other people who have detransitioned and to just tear them to shreds and people watch this. And I think it's because when we start to have those little niggling doubts in ourselves about whatever sin that we're pursuing, we want, we want to believe that we're not sinning. We want to believe that we're in the right. And so to have even a whole mob of people or to have a YouTube channel dedicated entirely to saying, forget them. You don't need to think anything, you know, to just watch these people get torn to shreds. I don't think that that woman is doing that just because she's concerned about the identities of people who might be affected by the detransition stories. I think she's doing it because she's trying to affirm for herself that the identity that she's living with now and, um, and that she is a real man, yeah. uh, that that's important for her her sense of well-being too within this thing, you know, within this facade that has been set up for her by the medical community and the culture. So I don't think you're entirely off base there, Stephen, at all. It's very uncomfortable to be a truth teller often. Let's talk about empathy and sympathy. This was a question and we could just wrap up the, the discussion about Rod Dreher's uh, book, Live Not By Lies. And one of the questions that we got this week is empathy versus sympathy. And there are some that would say we shouldn't be using the word empathy because that is actually the language of the critical race theory. Uh, and, and I've even seen some places where they're, they're uh, saying that empathy would be sinful to be using, to use that word. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Is, is it sinful for Christians to use empathy because it's, it's part of the, the CRT uh, culture can Christians be empathetic towards something that they've not experienced specifically for LGBTQ or for uh, those who have, have faced racist moments? Well, I, I think, yes. I, I think we want, we want to be careful about every time um, problematic ideologies like critical theory in general uh, use a, a perfectly good word. We need to be careful about, therefore, sort of just seeding that word over to them. And I would say the same about racism, that that's a word that's, that's sort of horribly abused um, by uh, critical race theory, but yeah. it's not a word that we should therefore sort of seed over to them because right. it is actually a good word when properly used. I'm actually yeah. just looking, I'm trying to find a, a very good quote from Carl Truman's uh, book on empathy. 
Uh, maybe, maybe Mary, you've got some thoughts to express while I just try to find this quote, because he, he, I think he nicely sums up what is a, a very unhelpful take on empathy that's been emerging over time. Uh, I'm just going to try and find it. As you're looking for that, oh. I just uh, am thinking of the comfort that we take as Christians in Christ being able to identify with our temptations because he, God took on flesh and was tempted in, in every way as we are. So, you know, Christ came as a man, so he can't, he didn't experience everything that a woman would, but he is a savior who took on flesh. And because he understands us um, in that way and can empathize with our sorrow, he's a very comforting savior. So I agree with you. I don't think that we should seed that term. And I, I think too, that there is a power in speaking truth, like having someone who's been, you know, I think of a mom going to a new mom now and saying, I know you're tired. I know you can't stop crying. I know you feel like this chaos of having a newborn is going to last for the rest of your life. And I promise you, I'm on the other side of it. I've been there. Uh, mm -hmm. I can empathize with what you're feeling. But now let's talk about what's true about this process. That's going to encourage right. her. Be because Chris, this is this is the, the way that the, the conversation goes is that Christians were to weep with those who, who are weeping, mourn yeah. with those who are weeping, mourning. Yeah. So therefore, you see your Christian brothers, Asian, African-American, Jewish, what, and they are, they are weeping because of systemic racism. Why can't you weep with them? Well, there's no reason why we can't weep with them, although obviously um by by doing that by lamenting with them you're not necessarily you're not making any claims that you're that you're that you directly understand or experience what they're experiencing uh but you do see them suffering mm -hmm. yeah. and that is a good enough reason to lament or to grieve with them i just i i I, I see it as a kind of non sequitur, if you like, that mm -hmm. you can't weep or lament with a group of people whose experiences you yourself have not experienced. And again, I think a lot of it, a lot of it, a lot of it um, relies on very problematic claims that we are all so different from one another that we can't possibly have any insight into what other people are feeling. And mm -hmm. I'm just not so sure that that is really true, that, you know, that Christians can find themselves, at least in a micro situation in an institution, let's say a secular university, where they actually are discriminated against, where their views are jeered at, where their views are demonized, where they can find their work uh, rejected on purely ideological grounds and where they can just feel that they're in a hostile environment that would rather they are not there. Uh, Christians of all races can experience that. And part of the human condition is that we have a kind of moral imagination where we can take those, those experiences and actually apply them to someone else's experience, which is in some ways very different. So the experience of, say, racism, but in another respect is not, in, is not so different that we can't, to some extent, understand what they're going through, which makes 
uh, empathy possible. So I guess what I'm saying is it kind of relies on the idea that if you're white, you've never experienced any kind of uh, discrimination, which is just absolute nonsense. Um, White people can experience discrimination based on where they live. If you're a white person in a predominantly non-white neighborhood, you are going to experience uh, discrimination. You're going to experience feelings of antipathy and and hostility towards you. Not by all people in that neighborhood, Certainly but by not. enough people in that neighborhood that will make you feel kind of like an outsider. And I myself have experienced that in in the suburb that I grew up in here in Australia. Not in, not entirely feeling welcome when I walk down certain streets and. Again, God's given us a kind of moral imagination where we can take those experiences and look at someone who's lamenting their experience, which is in many ways quite different from us, and say, you know something, I don't, obviously, I don't fully understand what you're going through, but I understand enough to know that this is a really bad thing for you. And I, I lament with you. I wonder if some of the issue is yes, we lament, but we lament to comfort. I'm trying to think of how to put this into words, but. There's a point at which um, if we're just grieving something with no end point, then the grief in and of itself can become damaging. I remember at the very beginning of when Black Lives Matter started to be, you know, a hashtag that you were seeing on Facebook and people were starting to say it. And there started to be a little bit of pushback, especially with people saying all lives matter. And I remember seeing some helpful, um, commentaries on that. And and there was one particular gentleman, I cannot for the life of me remember his name, but he's an African-American believer who lived somewhere in the South. And what he was saying was what a lot of my white Christian friends are asking is what do I do? You know, obviously, yes, black lives do matter. Um, I am horrified by what's going on. I don't know what to do. And he was talking about, you know, as an individual, what you do is, is, you deal with the individuals that God's placed you with. And so um, your acknowledgement that Blacks, Black Lives Matter is if you see injustice, then speak up about the injustice. This is something that you can do. You stand with that friend. You stand with that person, um, even if it's a stranger who you see being treated unfairly, then that's what you do. So, but this idea of sort of um, unending limit, I, I think that's what concerns me is it seems... I think we do limit, we do repent, um, but it seems that if it's just ongoing with no endpoint, there's no uh, forgiveness at the end. Um, there's no improvement. There's no place else to go outside of that grief. Then it starts to be a problem. And I do think sometimes that when we're called to empathize, if that's all we do with no purpose, it's not helpful. Um I hope that's relevant to kind of what you were dealing with, Stephen. The well, yeah, and the and the endpoint has to be a constructive endpoint, not just yeah. tear it all down. Yeah, yeah. like it, you know, it has to be. Yeah, it, it can't just be a kind of directionless anger slash hate slash utopian driven revolution that is just yeah. going to again wind up with more problems than what it was meant to solve. Hence, you know, the, the, the defund the police movement and, mm-hmm. and things like that. It has to be, I mean, the end point has, must involve forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. And why, why must it involve forgiveness? Because people are always going to sin against one another. 
Mm-hmm. You know, if, 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 if the end goal is that we are no longer sinning against one another, then, then that end goal will never be reached. But if the end goal involves forgiveness, then at the very least, we can live in peace with one another, uh, even though we will continually be disappointed with one another in, in some respects. But at least we can be realistic and know I sin against other people, other people sin against me. It's a problem. But you know, we also have this sort of supernatural revelation to us that the best way to resolve conflicts involves forgiveness. It certainly involves other people ex- admitting that they are thinking in, in problematic ways and acting in problematic ways, but it must involve forgiveness yes. uh, on, on, on the part of, of the victim, uh, yes. uh, as it were. Uh, so the end goal must be constructive and not merely destructive. But yeah. to, to, I found that that Truman quote on on empathy, yeah. and and like I'm yeah, not that I, I should have to say this, but I, I know that someone who will, will take my words and say, you know, Steve hates empathy. I don't. A- empathy is a good thing. I, I believe in empathy. Uh, it's just mindless empathy, which is simply about making people feel better in the moment. Yeah. Um, regardless of the long-term consequences, I, sort of the John Lennon empathy, all you need is love empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a real problem. Certainly love is more than just feelings. It's right. Define anyhow, love. Uh, yeah. 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 Well, Truman says uh, in, again, in sort of the rise and triumph of the modern self, uh, he says, take away the idea of universal human nature and ethics descends into the subjective emotivism that Alistair McIntyre, the the philosopher, sees as characterizing our present age. Empathy on its own is liable not just to be a sentiment, but to degenerate into a sentimentalism Mm. that simply wants other people to be happy in their own way, on their own terms. Yeah, I think that's the important thing there, that, that that simply wants other people to be happy in their own way on their own terms. And that's the great um, contradiction between sort of what modern empathy is becoming and what a biblical model of empathy is, is that people, happiness is to live according to God's way on God's terms. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas modern empathy just unhooks it from objective reality, from biblical truths about our nature as human beings and just says, well, Let's just try and be happy on our purely on our own terms. And it's just not turning out very well. Mm-hmm. You know, this brings to mind a quote that I actually printed out from the screw tape letters. Uh, and this ties directly into the Live Not by Lies as well, where the uncle, and now I'm blanking on his name, but anyway, the head demon is writing to his nephew. And he he says in the midst of a lot of other wonderful advice, and that book messed me up so badly when I was in junior high, I was seeing, you know, <laughs> different motivations behind everything, but Wormwood. um, Thank you. Wormwood. So Wormwood is writing to his nephew. He says, how much better for us if all humans died in costly nursing homes amid doctors who lie, nurses who lie, friends who lie, as we have trained them, promising life to the dying, encouraging the belief that sickness excuses every indulgence. And even if our workers know their job, withholding all suggestion of a priest, lest it should betray to the sick man his true condition. And how disastrous for us is the continual remembrance of death, which war enforces he's writing at a different time, but one of our best weapons, contented worldliness is rendered useless. 
in wartime, not even a human can believe that he's going to live forever. Mm. And that just, um, we want to just live in this therapeutic bliss all the time, but reality stands. And, um, I gotta love CS Lewis, sorry, but I, just, <laughs> you know, as, as Roger was talking about this therapeutic totalitarianism that we're in, um, that advice from Wormwood really stood out to me. Uh, another question we had come in is on the issue of patriarchy. I wrote back to the, uh, the, the question, but I, I would like to share what I wrote. But the question was, is, is patriarchy bad for society? And, and there's been movements, um, say, the last 30, 40 years that certainly that uh, there's been danger or there's been abuse and power. But I wrote uh, patriarchy is a creational hierarchical system led by a male father. It's clearly in scripture and in nature. However, I'm sure you can point to the sex in Christendom where it's overly emphasized in a way that becomes a dangerous power play. Thoughts on that? Well, again, like I said earlier, I think anything by un anything can be perverted by unwise or or devious minds mm -hmm. to justify evil. Mm. And and patriarchy, uh, you know, is is no different. People can abuse the idea of patriarchy uh, to basically say that women have no right of reply to anything that their husband might demand of them. Um, that is a total abuse of the biblical idea of, of, of a patriarchy. And so, mm -hmm. you know, the, the classic example of what, of what patriarchy is, is, you know, um, Really, I mean, I think it's 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 captured, you know, not just in you know wives submit to your husbands. That's only half the story. But you know, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's part of the patriarchy. Patriarchy isn't just about rights. In fact, I would argue that the the biblical emphasis on patriarchy is probably about duties. And any any man who aspires to lead a family. And, you know, the overwhelming majority of men ought to aspire to lead a family because it's one of the things that all men would sort of definitely created for with some exceptions, sure. Uh, that that the, the idea of a patriarchy, that they are the head of that household, should actually fill them with fear and trembling because the duties imposed on the male head of the household are not fun duties, uh, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Well, Christ died for the church. Uh, Christ was tortured in order for us actually to, for the church actually to sort of to exist. And that's not a fun thing. That's not getting whatever you want, whenever you want from your wife. That's actually the Christian concept of leadership, which is to take the initiative in service. And so I could understand why people whose minds are not informed by a biblical understanding of patriarchy, I can understand why they would sort of balk at the idea because to them it might simply signify a kind of arbitrary domination of men over women, which historically has, has occurred. And I wouldn't say that that is the history of male-female relations at all. But for those whose minds are steeped in a biblical understanding of what male headship is, i.e. patriarchy, that should be something that is tremendously discomforting for a man, and it should be comforting to women, knowing 
that they have certain rights against a man, that if a man is not treating them like Christ treats the church, and that's a big problem. I say this as one who knows, we were just talking about empathy, that there are abuses, obviously, uh, within patriarchal systems. But I benefited from having a father who actively was a father. And um, that meant that I had to submit to his authority at times, you know, I was given more freedom as I got older. Um, I completely rebelled against that authority at certain points in my life, always to my detriment. I had a dad who never felt that he did things perfectly by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, when we started having kids, my dad gave all of us Ted Tripp's books and said, you know, these are the mistakes that I made. Please don't do it the way that I did. He felt he was too authoritarian. I work for a man uh, and in working for Dr. Jones and Mrs. Jones, I see examples of male headship that have been more respectful of me as a woman than I've ever experienced in the secular world. And that is because he believed, he believes in uh, the importance of my role as a wife and my role as a mother. And I have a husband now who views his role of husband, not just as the title that got slapped on when we got married. And I know Joshua from seeing you with Lael and Stephen, uh, just the little bits of interaction I see with you and Cynthia. Um, I, I believe that this is true of you guys as well, that you take your roles as husband seriously, their job descriptions. And, um, I can say with many of my friends, not all of them, but with many of my friends, thank God, we don't have to do what our husbands have to do. Um, it's not always easy to submit, but when, when there is a man run by the Holy spirit led by scripture, who sees that balance that you've talked about, Stephen, in scripture, where anytime there's a prescription for a wife and the way she's supposed to behave and, and revere her husband, there is that balancing that is done. And, and I love that Ephesians pa passage, you know, husbands are supposed to love their wives as though they love their own bodies and to care for us that way. I have benefited from the beauty of that. And that is not to say I haven't seen abuses of it. That is not to say that I have not experienced some of those abuses in my own way, but to say, because there is abuse, uh, that the whole system should be thrown out or that the whole system is wrong, um, is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I think that the patriarchy was God's pre-fall, uh, arrangement. He gave, uh, instructions to Adam for how he and Eve were to live in the garden before Eve was created. So Adam was given that authority to lead her. God did that out of his love. And even after the fall, now there were complications in that authority structure. Mm -hmm. That's where the oppression came in and sin came in. And that's why we need Christ. That's why we need a Messiah. But that order did not get changed. Right. And Christ acknowledges that in the New Testament. And because we know God is loving, because we know God is our good designer, I think we have to say that the patriarchy is good. And any abuses within the patriarchy are wrong. Uh, but that's why they're wrong, is that they are diminishing that beautiful picture that God made male and female in his image. That's that's my thought. And again, I always want to point out, I, I'm not a theologian, but I mean, just in a, in a reading of scripture, this seems true to me. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing. I like how you sort of said that, of course, there can be abuses 
within a kind of patriarchal structure, but that doesn't mean you pull down the whole structure. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, there can definitely be abuses in a family law system that tends to prioritize the interests of or emphasize the interests and rights of a, of a, of a wife over a husband. Uh, there can be abuses in that, 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 that's, that some women can abuse that and misuse it to get revenge against a husband. But that doesn't mean that you would therefore pull down the whole structure of women's rights. Right. No, you, you sort of look at the structure and say, well, you know, it's actually aimed at something that's really good. And this is how it's being abused. Let's, let's work on that. And, and the same goes for what we might call... Um, the patriarchy. Uh, again, I think if when someone hears the term patriarchy, they immediately think oppression. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty good indication that their mind has been more formed by culture over the last 50 years than it has by scripture. So mm -hmm. for those sort of at home watching, if when you hear the word patriarchy, you suddenly have all sorts of uh, feelings of, of disgust and oppression, that probably indicates that your understanding of patriarchy has been more shaped, you know, sadly, uh, you know, possibly by bad experiences with men, yeah. and that yeah. can't be denied, but also by a post-Christian culture. And that what I would actually encourage you to do is look into the scriptural notions of, of male headship and what we might call patriarchy and see that in actual fact, uh, it is something that gives tremendous, uh, a tremendous, tremendous rights and, and, and comfort to women and tremendous responsibilities on men. And can I just add really quickly, just this keeps flashing into my head as we're talking about this. Um, my husband in the last couple of days was dealing with one of our kids and, uh, the child was pushing back on something that, uh, they really wanted to have go a different way. And um, my husband, he, he dug his heels in and he really was making a good, an objectively good decision for this particular child. And I was listening from the other room and kind of seeing him as he'd walk out and come back in, you know, and he finally just turned to me and he said, this is hard. <laughs> I, I don't like that I have to do this. And I think that women, maybe especially, we tend to think of the patriarchy as being the system where you guys are just, you're in control, dang it. And, and, but in that moment, I really saw the reality of that for Bob, which was he wanted to give in. He just wanted to give this child what they wanted because it would have been easier and it would have been mm -hmm. peaceful at the time. But ultimately, he knew it was the wrong thing to do. And so he held onto that role. He did exert that power but he exerted it for good. And the, I hate to use the word suffering, but the pain of that for him made him very lovely to me. And I, I think that's something that's been lost culturally is the loveliness of patriarchy, the, the goodness of it. And I just, as the single, the lone female voice on this particular podcast, um, I want to acknowledge that. Um, I think it's something that needs to be acknowledged and spoken of, even as we address the abuses that you both have, have openly acknowledged are there also. Um, I think that's important. I can, I, I empathize with Bob, <laughs> I'm gonna use that word, uh, about holding that line because it, having five children and, and wanting to just not suffer and just wanting to just say, yeah, go ahead and do that. Um, yeah. 
is very difficult. And it's all the more, and I don't know what it is. Having, having four sons and holding the line is a whole lot easier than having now that with, with my little girl, when, when she wants something, it's, it's all the more, it's so difficult. It is so difficult. Yeah. She just has me wrapped around her little finger. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure too, as in, in the husband role too, because Bob will see me just getting run over by the kids at certain points. And sometimes he addresses it with the kids, but sometimes he addresses it with me. He's like, babe, <laughs> like you just, you're, you're tired and you've let them, you know, question the last three decisions that you've made. Come on. You know, like, so he's encouraging me. He's using mm. that authority with me. And half the time I get really mad at him and tell him not to tell me how to parent. No, I've gotten a little better about that, but I mean, it rankles me because I don't want to be told what to do. I'm a grown woman. And yet at the same time, he's stepping in and protecting me. And so it, and he does hear me and he does let me voice my opinions. It's, I wouldn't take his role. Honestly, when I'm really being honest about it, I I wouldn't take his role. I'm very glad to be wife in my situation. I know that's not true everywhere, but I think when it works the way God intended it, it's a very beautiful thing. That's great. Well, I think a lot of the rage against patriarchy um, it sort of reveals that, again, sort of the expectations probably most women have of men to be kindly leaders, that they have been unfulfilled by men. And I, I think just a lot of the anger against patriarchy is because many men have failed in their patriarchal duties and the women who actually wanted that kindly leader who loves them as Christ loved the church found themselves betrayed. I think there is something we haven't really discussed and maybe it'll be for another time, but there there, there does to me seem to be something in male-female psychology which does lead women to want to be again, kindly led, mm-hmm. not, not dominated, but kindly led by a good man, um, probably in a way that men psychologically don't want to be kindly led by a woman. Um, certainly men and women want to be respected by one another, but probably in different ways. But, uh, you know, I think one of the evidences of, of the of the rightness of, of patriarchy is not just that it is all throughout scripture, but that is, it does seem to manifest in male, generally speaking, male, female psychology and, and what we look for in partners yes. and how we critique our partners. Yes. To give one example, um, I've heard numerous women complain about their boyfriends or even husbands that, He's, he's not ambitious enough. Mm. I've yet to hear a man complain about that um, regarding his girlfriend or wife, that, they, that there's, there are just different expectations on one another. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's kind of baked into our, our gendered psychologies as well. That's, I guess, something for maybe another time. Yeah. Well, I think that would be a great conversation to have, though, because, again, and I talked about this in the last podcast, there's also the results of the fall. And yes. um, when I was working on the talk I did for the conference, I had really worked my way back through the Genesis account. And as I was reading uh, the curses and that desire that Eve was going to have. So I, I think you're right that we do have this God-given desire to be led kindly. I, I like the way that you qualified that. But we also, after the fall, have this 
inherent bucking against the very thing that we want. And, and again, you know, just remember being downstairs and Bob saying something to me and, and feeling that sort of rise up in me and having a conversation with him later about like, I, and I can even like blame it on him. Well, if he had just said it different, if he had just, you know, made that suggestion with a different tone or a different piece of vocabulary, I wouldn't have responded that way. Well, no, I think that a lot of that response is inherent to, to me as female. And I can back that up because I did talk to my girlfriends about it and we all struggle with that. So, um, I'd really, if you guys are up for it, I'd love to have that conversation at some point. I think it's really, really interesting and important. Yeah, we need to, and we should. Okay. <laughs> um, we are out of time. Please mark your calendars. April 5th to the 10th is our first online symposium, State of Our Disunion. Joshua, where are people going to access this symposium? So they'll be able to access it online at truthexchange.com as well okay. as on YouTube and um, also Facebook, I believe. Thank you guys for being back on the show. Always great to be here. 